0: First of all, I'd like to uh, dedicate today's class to the health and well-being of a dear friend, Alexander Ben Stella. Uh, Number two, as I just mentioned to you people before we opened up the recording, um, the continuation of Emuna in Times of Success, the one that I did part one. We're going to do part two next week. This week, we're going to have faith in the journey. And that's what tonight's all about. So, guys, let's... uh, Let's just bring up to speed why we picked that topic for tonight. Because what is this week's Torah portion? This week's Torah portion starts with the words Vayetze Yaakov and Yaakov left. He left his father's home. You remember last week at the end, after he got the blessings out of Isaac, Esau wanted to kill him. Rivka finds out about this. Rivka makes a, tells him, I want you to run away until your brother comes down. And what happens then? He goes ahead, she goes ahead to the father and tells the father, I don't want him to marry the local girls, so I want him to travel. And then Isaac agreed with that, so all of a sudden he has the blessing of the father too to leave. And he leaves. This week's Torah portion begins with that journey. Vayetze, Yaakov and Yaakov, Jacob left, sheva, from the place called Be'er Sheva, charona, and he's going to a place called Haran. Okay? Now, What we're taught in the teachings of Chassidus, and the mystical teachings, is that this verse, besides happening close to 4,000 years ago, it also is the journey of each and every one of us. Why? So we're going to go relatively quick through the teaching, because what I really want to focus on is the promise of faith that he makes to God. But first let's understand how this is not just a story of the past, but it's our story, each and every one of our stories on many levels. Level number one is the mystical level. The word Yaakov in Kabbalah is of two words, Yud, Akav. Yud, the letter Yud, Akav, heal. We know that why is Jacob called Jacob? Because his when he, that correct when he was born, his hand was holding on to Esau's heel. The deeper meaning is the Yud of the name of God, yud K vav ke, the four-letter, the ineffable name of God. The letter Yud is the first of the ten Sefirot, which is Chachma, wisdom. And in the world of Atzilut, the highest spiritual world from where souls come, it says that he and his wisdom is one. So we're talking about the highest level. That's where every single Jewish soul comes from. Where is this neshama going to? It goes to Akav. What is Akav? Akav is the heel. In Kabbalah, when we talk about death, we speak about—oh, sorry—we speak about death as in the heel. Why? Because the heel is the minimal amount of life. O cave is called the death part of the person. And what does that represent? Kabbalistically speaking, that's called the world of separation. We have in the world of Atzilut, which I mentioned to you, the holy world is called the world of unity. And then you have the world of separation. Separation, when you're separating from the source of life, that is death. And then besides the spiritual worlds, which are good, the worlds of separation, we evolve into the lowest world which is the physical world which is over here and this world is called Alma the Shikra the world of lies. So we're talking about a journey of what we refer to as Mi'igra Roma Libira Amikta from the highest mountain to the depths of the lowest valley. We're going from not just any place in creation not just from the 10th emanation called Malchot. We're talking about the highest of the high in the highest world, the world of Atzilut, the world of unity. In there itself, we're talking about the highest of the ten emanations, which is Chachmah, Twice in Tanya, the Rebbe quotes his teacher, the Mazrit Shemagid, and says in the name of his teacher that Chachmah is the only, the only vessel for the Ein Sof, for the infinite. Because everything beneath that is already defined as a form and a shape. While the word Chachma comes from the word Koachma, total nullification of nothingness. And that ultimate transparency allows for it to house the Sof, the infinite one. That's where the Neshama comes from. So we're talking about the highest of the high. And where is it descending into? The soul comes down into the physical body, which is the lowest of the low. We go further in the verse. He left from Be'er Sheva. What is Be'er Sheva? As you learned in the last couple of Torah portions, Be'er Sheva originally was not called Be'er Sheva. What was it called by Abraham? Be'er Sheva, named after the oath. And then later, that's by Abraham, when he makes the oath with King Avimelech. And then later, that very same place becomes Be'er Sheva. Sheva means seven, because it is the seventh well that Isaac dug, and that's why it's called Be'er Sheva. In Kabbalah, we have over here these two definitions. Sheva comes from a very high source of Bina. Oath takes place in the second level of intellect. And Sheva refers to the seven emotions. Why? Because in order for the soul to be empowered, to be able to do its mission in this very, very descending journey from the highest of high to the lowest of low, therefore what happens? Hashem empowers it with the power of the oath. Like Tanya opens up with a quote, From tractic Nida, which says that before a soul descends, God makes it take an oath. Why take an oath? Because an oath doesn't need to make sense no more. In other words, the reason why we take the oath makes sense. But once you've taken the oath, you don't question no more whether it makes sense or not. Because I've taken an oath. I need to keep my oath. So therefore before the soul leaves the world of unity where it makes sense to be one with God, where its love and awe and faith is continuously fueled by the spirituality of its environment, now it is going to descend into a place of darkness, a place of separation, a place where it does not feel the spirituality. So God makes it take an oath. The oath is Bina empowered by the supernal crown which allows for the soul to know that at this point there is no choice in the matter no more. It's empowered that even when it doesn't feel, even when it doesn't understand, it still remains faithful and does what it has to do and does not do what it's not allowed to do. But that in itself is not tangible. That's very deep, omnipotent. But for that very reason, it's not something we live daily on. So that carries itself into the seven emotions. And as every good salesperson will tell you, nothing happens without emotions. And therefore we're given seven. Seven is the seven emotions. So the soul, the yud, comes all the way down into the alcave, And before it leaves, it leaves from where? The well of Bina. The well of the seven emotions. Giving it the power it ha- needs to be able to send into the to descend into the world of darkness, and there still to do what has to be done. Where is it descending to? Charon. What is Charon? Charon is called Charon. Rashi told us because Charon Afshel It is the place of sin. It is the place of separation, which is the place of anger to God. Charon comes the word Charon Af the flaring of the anger for the sake of completion we're going to go to one more piece of this amazing interpretation now all of a sudden we're not talking about Jacob of old we're talking about you and I at the moment of birth beginning our descent taking on our mission so then we look at what Jacob does He gathers together rocks from the place and he places them from under his head. He places it around his head actually as a shield for his head and he goes to sleep. Let's get to the mystical interpretation of this. In the world, there are four categories. From top down, we have human, animal kingdom, plant, and the inanimate. Rocks belong to the lowest category the inanimate. Not only that, but avne, plural. Remember we spoke about the world of separation. Jacob is taking the lowest of the low, the inanimate of plurality, separation, rather than unification, and he's placing them to protect around his head. His job is to take, lift the building from the lowest level. Take the lowest level and there start imbuing it with purpose and with spirituality and then when he wakes up he has that dream right he realizes that he's sleeping in a holy place and he sees angels going up and down when he wakes up all of a sudden rashi points out to us and he took the rock on what rock there was plurality how often do we have one rock he had many rocks and the answer is that a miracle took place rashi tells us we all learn it as children that the rocks broke out with a fight because all the rocks would be around the head but one rock would be the pillow and because they all thought that we want that the great tzaddik, the holy pious man should place his head on me, me, me they unified together and they all became one rock now, you know it's interesting I've noticed over the last couple of days that my children give me good reports thank God on the test that they took Whenever they can, they always point out to me, and I think I'm the only one that got this mark. (laughs) You know, there's two things. There's whether I have or not, which is important. But there's something a little more important, which is whether you have or not. (laughs) That's interesting, right? What would happen normally in the world of separation? Imagine, rocks are fighting, and all of a sudden, Solomonic wisdom, don't fight. We'll make you all one. He'll have his head on all of you. Now, for a moment, let's be realistic here. Most of us with our egocentric drives, we wouldn't be so excited about that because we didn't just want the tzaddik to lay on me. I wanted the tzaddik to lay on me and not on you because if he lays on me and on you, what's so special about me? So where did that happen? How all of a sudden in the world of separation, the lowest level of the world of separation, the inanimate, All of a sudden, they're at peace. Oh, thank you, Hashem. Great idea. Hey, we're going to be in this together. My head, your head. It's all going to be together. The answer is, that is the outcome of what Jacob did. So already we see Jacob's work taking place. He already affected their egocentric eye into the less-than-egocentric But becoming now more of unity, let's turn the I into us. That's what happens. Jacob davened Myrev there. He did his night services. And like a good chassid, he probably did a beautiful Shema Yisrael before he went to bed. Bringing about unification in his environment. And therefore we already see the many becomes one. Okay? Then after the dream he wakes up he says how awesome is this place and then he goes on to have a conversation with God in his dream God told him that I am the God of your father and your grandfather and don't worry I will protect you and your children will spread forth to the east and the west and north and the south from plentifulness they'll be so powerful they'll be so blessed and so forth and so on. Yaakov wakes up And now we're getting to the part of the story that we're going to focus this class on. Yaakov wakes up and he makes a promise. He takes the rock, he anoints the rock, he makes a promise. And what is the promise he makes? He makes an oath to God. And if you will provide me with bread for food, and you will provide me with clothing to wear, and you will bring me back to my father's home, in peace, Rashi says in peace means that I will not be captured in sin by the effects of the environment of Lavan. He knew where he was heading to. He wasn't exactly heading to the chassidish neighborhood. So he says, and if you bring me back spiritually unaffected, clean from sin, and then I will build for you a house. One more verse is needed for tonight's class of Garden of Amuna is the first verse that starts off the next story. And Jacob lifted his feet. Rashi says that language of Ayisa, lifted, means that he wasn't walking heavy under a big burden. All of a sudden it became light. A stone was lifted from his heart. And Rashi says, why? Because of the news that he heard from God. God promised to protect him. Okay, So we're now seeing that this story is the story of every single one of us. We all went through the descent of Jacob from the Yud. The soul went from the highest of high into the lowest of low. We all in our own life used to be in Be'er Sheva. We were children. We were studying. That was our life. We were in the protected environment, the love of our parents. We all had our own Be'er Sheva where we were being imbued with the power, the intellectual, the emotional, the spiritual power that we would need to do our journey. And every single one of us eventually got kicked out of the pool and we had to head down to Haram. We've got to deal with the other side of life because that's where the mission lies. So that part we understand. Let's talk about the, the promise over here. The if you do this, and I will do this, and then he walks away very certain. It's a quick walk. It's a brisk walk. It's a powerful walk of certainty. We all have this struggle in our journey. We're not so certain. We're not so certain of our journey. We're not so certain of our success. We're not so certain that there's not going to be no casualties along the way. So we want to focus on this Vayider Yaakov Neder. Now to understand this Vayider Yaakov Neder, let's talk about what he's asking for. He's asking to succeed in the mission without any casualties. And most of all, Jacob is worried about spiritual casualties. So let me share with you a story. It's a story that took place with the previous Rebbe, a conversation he had with A chassid who worked for him. He was his gabai, A very, very great chassid. And the only reason why we know part of this conversation is because he wrote it to one of his very close friends in a letter. And he writes there clearly, this is what I could reveal to you about the conversation. Understand there's a lot I cannot reveal to you about the conversation. He went and he asked the previous rebbe in the high holiday season for a blessing. I believe it was Simcha's Torah actually It was an auspicious moment And he asked the previous Rebbe for a blessing What does the previous Rebbe's gabai ask for? He asks a blessing for the previous Rebbe And what is the previous Rebbe all about? His spiritual work Namely in those days It was really the Yeshiva The Yeshiva was the centerpiece And the gem of all their work That was the driving force Those were where the soldiers were Molded and from there they went out And they did the previous Rebbe's work so he asked. He knew the dangers that was going on in that stage of Russia. Russia was hunting down the yeshivas like no tomorrow, and therefore he asked for a blessing. And what was the blessing? He asked. There should not be any nisyonot. What does nisyonot mean? Tests, challenges. So the previous rebbe answered, nothing. Nothing happens without nisyonot. We need to go through tests. So this Gabbai answers back, but don't we pray every single morning, you should not bring us to any tests? And the previous Rebbe wiped it off. Nah, you're reading the prayer wrong. Right after the test, we say, don't bring us to any tests and no embarrassments. And the real definition of that prayer, the previous Rebbe is explaining, is, of course we're going to have tests. We just ask that the way we handle our tests shouldn't lead to embarrassments. In other words, we shouldn't fail the test. That's what we're praying for. Journeys need to have descents. They need to have tests because that's where growth happens. So now we really have a question of faith. Who says we're going to pass the test? Previous Rebbe knew he was going to pass the test. You and I aren't so certain. A track record probably has ups and downs. So what is it all about? So I want to introduce to you a total different story which will happen with this story. It is one of the most famous talks of the Rebbe. It is the story of the prayer of Hannah. Who was Hannah? Hannah is the mother of Samuel the prophet. The story, we read about it on actually on Rosh Hashanah, one of our Torahs. We talk about the story how her husband had two, two wives in those days, that so was permissible. One wife had children, and Hannah had no children. And Hannah goes to the holy temple and she prays there. At this point, most of you will begin to recognize the story. The high priest accuses her of being drunk because of the way she was praying and he actually admonishes her, why do you come to the courtyard of the holy temple intoxicated leave and what does she answer I am a very sober woman I am praying my heart to God and I'm praying for a child and when Eli realizes the high priest realizes what's happening he actually blesses her and she made a promise to God give me a child to serve you and I will dedicate him to the temple at the age of I think it was two or three very young age and that's what happens she has a baby and she literally on his birthday brings him to the temple and hands him over to the high priest and said I made a promise I need you to bring up this child in the house of God he is to serve God his entire life From this story, we have laws of how to pray and how not to pray. This woman who was accused to pray under the influence actually became the source. She introduces to us a new name of God, which hasn't been used prior in the way she used it. She teaches of laws of whether to pray aloud or to pray quietly. We learn that a lot from her. In this talk, the Rebbe takes what we learn from her to a whole new level. You see, what was her prayer? Did she pray, give me a child to serve me in my older age? Did she pray, give me a child so that I won't be embarrassed, my life won't be empty? Did she pray, give me a child so that I can boast? No. By the way, if you remember the story that we learned in Noah, Noah cursed his younger son because you stopped me from having a son who would serve me in my old age. We all would like to believe that having children is a selfless act. It actually is far from selfless. Having children is the way we defy the grave. That's what it really is all about. It gives us meaning, gives us purpose, gives us a way to continue our family legacy. So I love when everyone says, oh, I live my whole life for my kids. I'm not so sure. But let's move on here. She clearly states, there's only one reason I want to have a child. Because I want to bring into this world someone who will serve you, who will proclaim your name, who will teach Jews about you, who will learn about you, who will be a walking, talking representation of the scroll, the Holy Torah. You know, there's an interesting Zohar concerning the High Holidays. When you hear the Zohar, it really sends a chill down your back. It says, he who prays on Rosh Hashanah for their needs. God, please grant me health. God, please grant me this. God, please grant me that. All by the way, we're not talking about foolish things. We're talking about the bare necessities and beyond. The Zohar proclaims, he is like a dog who barks, give me, give me which is just this whole teaching, is just unbelievable. First of all, the entire mitzvah of prayer is specifically to ask God for your needs. If you come here to pray, and you talk about how great God is, and you pray for all your friends, but you didn't feel comfortable, or you just didn't pray for yourself, you should know that you did not do the mitzvah of prayer. The mitzvah of prayer is to simply, daily, according to one opinion, to ask God for your needs. And here the Zoah is telling you on the high holidays, the day of judgment. On the very day that we pray for life. It's written in our book all over the place. Please give us a year of sustenance. Give us a year of peace. Give us a year of blessing. Give us a year of life, of health and everything. Comes the Zohar and says, I know what it says in the book. But let me tell you that if you pray for your needs, you're like a dog that barks, give me, give me. How does that make sense? But if we understand the secret of Hannah's prayer, we understand then the secret of High Holiday prayer, and we understand what happens here in this moment of faith between Jacob and God, God and Jacob, as Jacob is leaving Be'er Sheva to take on the journey to his destiny. The secret of prayer is as follows. God, I live to serve you. Please give me everything I need to be able to serve you. That is the true definition of prayer. The true definition of prayer is, why am I asking for these things? Because when I have these things, I will be able to serve you. Let's take a journey to a total different topic for a moment. Maimonides writes clearly that there is no reward of the commandments in this world. On a deeper level, there's nothing in this world that can justify itself as a decent reward for doing a mitzvah. But my mind says that, And then in my mind how can you say that? if we say every single day, and if you will do my commandments, I will give you your reins in the time, and I will provide with you, and if you walk in my statues, the Torah is full of promises, rewards for doing mitzvot. So how can you say, just say that there is no reward for mitzvah in this world? And the explanation is as follows. Anything that you're getting in this world because you did a mitzvah is not a reward for the mitzvah. Only that in Ethics of Our Father we say that one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. The reward of one mitzvah is to be able to do another mitzvah. So if you serve God, God will give you the opportunity to do more mitzvot. I.e., He'll give you more money to do charity. He will be able to give you more health so you'll be able to study Torah easier. You'll be able to accomplish everything you need to in your business office in half the amount of hours so you can spend a little morning in the shul learning before you run to work and you can leave early and take care of some mitzvahs, do some hospital visitation. So when we look in the Torah and we see the Torah describing physical rewards for mitzvah, it's not rewards. It's the blessing. You did one mitzvah. I will now give you the opportunity to do another mitzvah. Not only will I give you the opportunity to do another mitzvah, I'll give you the opportunity to do it in a much fancier fashion, in a more beautiful fashion, in a more wholesome fashion. I see that you're learning, but I know that you're having problems with your mortgage. I know that you're worried about health. I know that you're worried about finding a Shidduch. So therefore, let me take care of these problems for you, so that you'll again be able to learn, but with such a fuller mind and such a more wholesome heart. The same applies to our prayer. What Rambam is writing about God's promises of spirit, of physical goodness four mitzvahs is exactly what our prayers are all about. Coming to God and telling God I want to serve you in the best way possible. Please grant me that opportunity. Grant me the peace of heart, the peace of mind, the peace of heart. Grant me the financial capacity. Grant me what, everything I need to be able to serve you. Not that, uh, yeah. Why am I being apologetic? Let me not be apologetic. I can just tell you my experience. Those who promise a donation when they make money never give donations. Those who give small donations and say, "Rabbi, as I build, I'll give bigger donations," end up giving bigger donations. And that's what's taking place here. Those that are doing mitzvot. Hashem gives them opportunity to do greater mitzvot. Those who say, I will do mitzvot when I have the chance, they're not plowing the field, sowing the field. So even if it does rain, nothing grows. Those, what does the Torah, what does the Mishnah say? Don't say that when I have the time, I'll learn. Maybe you'll never have time. But start learning and Hashem will make time for you. How often do you hear, I have to work on Shabbat now, but God willing, I'll build up and I'll get a better job. I won't work on Shabbat. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe go through the painstaking, downscaling of finding a job that you will keep Shabbat and then showing God that you've made your commitment, so therefore God can find you a much better job in which you'll still be able to keep Shabbat the Rebbe writes to people over and over again. Times are hard. Make a commitment. You make a commitment. Hashem will help you keep your commitment. That's what's going on in the prayer. That's what's going on in the promise from God to us. And that's what's going on in the promise of faith from Jacob to God. When Jacob is saying, if you provide for me, And immediately his focus is very clear. Bring me back unscathed spiritually from the place where I'm going, from the environment I'm going to be in, from the environment I need to have an effect on. I can't lock myself in a room. You're sending me there to make a difference. That means I do need to roll up my sleeves. I do need to step out into the public. I do need to be socially involved. Grant me that I will return to my father's home as pure with the same morals and the same principles and the same commitment as I am now. From that sentence of his deal, you can see what he has in mind in the other sentence of his deal. If that's what's on his mind, bring me back unscathed. Spiritually, we now understand what he means when he says, if you provide for me bread to eat, And garments to wear. We now understand what he's asking for. It's all the same thing. God, allow me to really be able to serve you. I had the painful pleasure of witnessing such a conversation. I had the painful pleasure of seeing a very special person who's done teshuva, Going through issues, financially, also health, everything should work out. And he literally broke down crying when he started talking about his family's questioning him. But why you? You're the one who made the change. You're the one who's me Shabbos. You're the one who's doing all these things. When he was talking about his hardships, it hurt. It hurt a lot. He wasn't crying. I saw this grown man break down when he got to that part of the conversation. I compared that to Jacob and to Hannah. Praying, don't let me be a Chilul Hashem. Don't let me be the disgrace of your name. Provide for me what I need to be able to serve you and to be able to have an impact on my family, to show them that this life is a life of blessing. Provide for me, so that I can really walk in your ways, better and stronger, and allow people to see that it's worth walking away from all the Hazarai to live this life. I was telling myself whether well, I should get into this or not get into this so I'm going to stick in a very quick parenthesis. We're all adults. We all know that no matter how much we want to be selfless, we're stuck biologically with an egocentric drive. It's very difficult to know whether I'm saying I mean God but I mean myself or I'm saying I mean God and I really mean God. And at some level until Mashiach comes, none of us sitting in this room will ever only mean God. Because that's the way God created us. But let me share with you that if in your prayers, when you pray to God, you really can say to yourself, it's, whatever it is it is, I'm asking you, God, please allow me to be a blessing to your name. If 50% of you has that in mind in prayer, if 40% of, the, of you has that in mind in prayer, you're ready on your way. So please, don't say to yourself, Yeah, I know, you're a rabbi, he said, but I can never do that. None of us can ever do that. Not until Mashiach comes. That's what separates Rebbe from the rest of the human race. But, if you can just keep on honing that part of your prayer, because each and every one of us has it, Dayenu. Now let's talk about faith. I'm asking Hashem, Please, give me the strength not to let you down. Everything just changed here. Give me the strength not to let you down. So what am I asking God? I'm actually praying to God that he should take care of himself. Yeah, I'm praying to God, take care of yourself. Because you've set up the system that you depend on my serving you. Whatever that means, God depends on nothing and no one. But that's the system. I'm asking of you, God, please give me the strength not to let you down. That's what we're doing. We're asking Hashem that. Now that approach from the perspective of uh, Emunah changes everything. Because the biggest poison there is, the most lethal poison there is in emuna, is that little bug that comes dressed up like a big rabbi in a long white beard. But I'm not deserving. I don't doubt that God could. I'm doubting whether God will. Not that I'm doubting whether God will because God's not a good God. But I'm doubting whether God will because God is a just God and I know what no one else knows about me. So who am I fooling by having a munah? Do I deserve it? Do I not deserve it? That's really the most lethal poison there is to Amunah. But now we just turned around the whole situation because I'm not praying for God to give me what I want. I'm going to share with you one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've ever read that was written by Abraham Lincoln. It was smack in the middle of the Civil War and they found now a not now, but it's somewhere in the Smithsonian Museums and the museums over there. <sighs> not the Smithsonian, probably in the White House. A little manuscript in which Abraham Lincoln writes the following. There's a great book out there, by the way. Biography on, on Abraham Lincoln, which is the closest we'll ever get to an autobiography because all it does is it keeps on quoting his letters, his writings, his speeches, and He just fills in in between what was going on. Now, you understand that two people write the same books can be different because those little filling in between is what puts the blinders on the horse and gives interpretation. But it's a beautiful book. The manuscript the writing he has is like this. And I'm not going to quote you for words. I don't remember the words. But the theme, it hit me like a bomb. Abraham Lincoln, in, in the most difficult moments, of this country, of his presidency, of everything. He writes, and if they win, meaning the other ones, and if they win, it was God's will. And if it's God's will, why shouldn't I be okay with it? (laughs) Abraham Lincoln. Unbelievable. The news coming to him wasn't that great. His general did a couple of botch-ups. And he's writing over there. But if they win the war, then God has spoken. It's God's will. Whoever God wants to win will win. And if God wants them to win, why should I be against that? How close a human being can get to that, I don't understand. Fighting for everything. Putting your whole name on the line, your whole guts on the line, your whole belief on the line and yet acknowledging that maybe the other one is right in God's eyes and if i know that short stop u turn how many of us can do that let's be honest how many of us made once in the conversation a rash statement we didn't even mean what we said we just wanted to kick up the conversation so we wanted to play devil's advocate and we really didn't believe what we said but the guy now is arguing with us, so we're defending our, our opinion, and all of a sudden, that little joke that meant nothing, we just did it to just liven up the conversation. we're having a real emotional argument about to break up a friendship of 20 years, because he's disagreeing with me, but you yourself were disagreeing with you. But somehow, all of a sudden it became an ego. You can't back down. That happens to us even when we just make a joke. Here, we're talking about a man who really believed in what he was doing. And it wasn't just a conversation around the Shabbos Cholent. There was a civil war that was going on here. He altered, he was in the process of altering the entire country, the entire direction, history of our country. And understanding all of this, and then to be able to say, this man sat there in the Oval Office of those days and made that statement. But if they win, God has spoken. It's God's will. If it's God's will, I'm okay with it. Now reread, read Re-read Chana's prayer. Reread read what the Rambam writes about physical reward. And most important for us today, re-read the discussion Jacob's having with God. By Yaakov Neder. And when you really put yourself in that position, then I need to quote to you something from one of the most beautiful chassidim that lived in our generation, and I personally knew him. His name was Rabbi Shmuel David Reitschik. Rabbi Shmuel David Reitschik was mentioned a couple of times at the convention I just came back from. And he was quoted for his most famous quote. helfen." In English... God will definitely help. In his own life he's been through, from Europe, Shanghai, coming to America, living in California, watching very difficult times in his own life, very difficult times. He was an emissary of the Rebbe, or the previous Rebbe, and then the Rebbe, watching very difficult times. And he gave himself strength, and all those around him strength, with those words. God will definitely help. Let's take a little, I wanna focus into the story and tell you what this really happens. 1978, the Rebbe had a heart attack. It was very scary. Chesidim at the time, many of them didn't know the extent of the heart attack, and those who did know, it wasn't very pretty. The man who works under Rabbi Reichik is Rabbi Kunyan, and Rabbi Kunyan walked out then a complete mess. Rabbi Reichik sees him, and Rabbi Reichik tells him these words. Yene boss, he spoke a Polish or Yiddish. Yene boss as undi boss, kenen viel in de gesheft, sedzangit. That boss, God knows, that without this boss down here, who he sent here, represents him, and does what he wants done, nothing will happen. So what are you worried about? It's going to be okay. It's not about me. It's about God. God wants to be here, he's telling his fellow Chassid, more than you and I want him here. Because that is his mission in this world. A man who single-handedly put together our nation after the Holocaust. Now everyone's taking credit for the outreach program, but look at the papers in the 1950. Those who claim to have started it, for some reason their names are in articles where it's said it's absolutely off the charts, you can't do this. So, what made Rabbi Rajik certain that God was going to be there for us is because it was to God's benefit for him to be there to us. There's a very interesting Tich interpretation to a prayer. La Hashem Yeshua. God, to God is the salvation. Simply, what it means is who has the power of salvation is God. There's an interesting interpretation. La Hashem Yeshua. Who's going to be saved? If God does this miracle, God's name will be saved. So Jacob's entire approach to his journey, to his mission, is it's all about you God and I'm praying for you to stand by your mission, your needs. Give me the strength not to let you down. You understand how faith all of a sudden becomes powerful? It's no more that lethal little poison that sneaks in so idealistically. Do you deserve it? You don't deserve it. Who are you? And God's just for all the pains you're going through in your life, God forbid. No, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about you, God. You will not let yourself down. And because the way you set up the world with freedom of choice and we are the ones that are doing it, if we dedicate our lives to you, You will give us everything we need to do your mission. Step number one in faith, when we talk about faith in the journey, the minute we become egocentric, we have idealistic doubt, lack of faith. Being very clear with what I'm saying, we have idealistic doubt. Because if it's about me, do I really deserve it? God's just. Am I really living up to my side of the deal that God should keep his side of the deal? But if it's not about me, it's about you, God. You definitely deserve your salvation. Allow me to do what I need to do for your salvation. To get rid of the creation of God's name. To bring the sanctification of your name. To do that which you want done. Which leads to step two. We're running a little late. Let's close it up. Step two is that God didn't give Jacob any signs. It was a dream. That's all it was. It was a dream. And what happens? By Yiso, Yaakov, Esraglov. The certainty made his entire gate so much different his walk was a different walk his posture was a different posture everything changed there comes a point I tell this to the people dating there comes a point where you've got to stop questioning you've got to have faith I did my due diligence I'm doing this for the right cause, as much as humanistically possible. I looked into everything I had to look into. At some point, we need to stop asking God to sign a contract with us. God doesn't sign contracts with us. He told you it's going to be okay. You do what you have to do. I'll do what I have to do. And it's going to be okay. I want to finish with a story. There's a man that lives here in Florida that one day when his father of blessed memory went by the Rebbe as far as I understand the story out of the blue the Rebbe gave him a second dollar Sunday dollars the Rebbe gave him a second dollar and told him it's for your son said the name that lives in Florida and tell him now here I heard two ready texts. One was question form and one was statement form. But the concept is the same. Tell him that I think about him a lot more than he thinks about me. My brother was here in Florida at the time. And he told me the outcome of that statement. But we'll leave all the details out. That's Taichva Yisa Yaakov Esraglov. Jacob wasn't busy asking himself, does God really care about me? Does God really going to stand by me? Am I worthy of this? And uh, yada, 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 yada. Yaakov switched the entire conversation. It isn't a question whether God thinks about me. It's a question whether I think about Him. It isn't a question whether He's going to bless me. It's a question whether I'm going to make the vessels and the right purpose and fulfill the mission with the blessings that He will bless me. That's the faith of the journey, guys. Zygesund.